Good evening, church. My name is Letu. Um, <laughs> I work here. <laughs> um, I'm part of the staff here at Christchurch Midrand. I work in the teens ministry. And I will be doing today's Bible reading coming from Ruth 4, from verse 1 to 22. And it will be up on the screen behind me. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken of came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if, but if you will not, if you will not, tell me that I may know. Whoops. <clears throat> For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. He said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the w- widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land of the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to, to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off, um, cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. You may act worthily in Ephratah, and you may be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to, the, to Naomi, blessed, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, is, who is more to you than, than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Uh, Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. How are you all doing? Good. Some people are half asleep. Uh, if you've been on camp, 
I think a lot of the people who have been on camp though have probably gone home, which is a good thing because they just need to sleep. That's good. All right. Well, well done. You've all made it. Most of you. We're now on the last sermon in the book of Ruth. Give yourselves a hand. That's amazing. Well done. (laughs) So without further ado, I think I'm going to pray for us and then get us started. All right. Father God, I do thank you that you are the God of everything and I I specifically thank you tonight that you are the God who restores. Uh, And I pray that as we we go through this, you will help us grow in you, uh, help us see you as the restorer. Uh, And I pray for anybody who's perhaps not a believer here, that your spirit will be at work and and that you will help them to to hear what your word has to say uh, and maybe change their hearts, Lord. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so here's the question. have you ever had a YouTube binge that you know if other people knew you binged this, they'd judge? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm hearing a few yeses. So one of mine, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be open with you guys here, please don't judge, okay? One of mine is watching toy cars being restored. Okay, I know it sounds weird, but I, I also have a friend who loves watching dams being filled up, so I don't think mine is as strange as that. But uh, I love that friend, he's strange. Um, but mine would be a little bit normal if I was probably watching videos of not toy cars, but actual cars being restored, which I do enjoy those as well. But I, the reason why I watch this is for the same reason that you watch the thing that you you feel you're going to get judged for is you are you are on YouTube this video was suggested it caught your eye and next thing you went down the loophole right you know this so i did and and i've actually started to really enjoy watching this guy do it restoring these toy cars that are rusted and broken and battered and he brings them to pretty much looking brand new now the reason i'm saying that is because i i I did this thing that pastors do when we watch these videos. We overthink, okay? I overthought, and I looked at it, and I said to myself, wow, I think humans are a lot like those cars being restored. Because I looked at it, and I was like, yeah, I was like, we come in, and we're beated, we're, we're battered, and, and we feel that way, don't we? Sometimes in life, you look at yourself, you just, the stuff, and you know, everybody feels this way at some point, okay? Because we all, no matter who we are, we go through bruises and battle. We go through life, right? We deal with life, okay? So that's how we get to this point. Plus, there's some people like Simba here, you're a little bit older than everybody else, so you start to feel the pains and the cramps. You know, you start to feel it. That's a joke, Simba. Don't kill me later. Okay. So, so you start to, you, age happens. So you start to feel battered and bruised. And, and the thing is, I think at some point we all just wish we could be restored back to the beautiful thing that actually God created us to be, right? I think that's a desire that's for many of us. Well, the main point of today is all about restoration. Now, I've got another chocolate again. For those of you who are new, I've been using bribery. So uh, I ask questions and whoever answers gets a chocolate. So here's the question. How do we know what the main point of a passage is in the book of Ruth? Anyone remember? Oh, okay. I've got one chocolate and there's three of you that shouted. You're going to have to share. It's really small. I have other chocolates in my bag after this, so you can take one each. There we go. 
Oh. I love it. I'm creating animosity between people. They were fighting for it. Okay, that's great. All right, so it says this in verse 14. This is how I know that the, the passage is about restoration. So in the previous chapters of, of Ruth, the main point actually comes in Naomi's speeches. But this time around, Naomi actually doesn't speak in this chapter. So after looking at this passage for quite some time, I eventually found the main point in verse 14 and 15. It says this. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. There's our word restorer in verse 15. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now what these verses are saying is that through the Lord's Redeemer, God restores and nourishes Naomi. Now, how she's nourished is actually through the whole process of restoration. So let's think about the story so far. This is the context. And you'll kind of see as we go along that the Lord has throughout the book actually been restoring Naomi and Ruth to the point that he nourishes them. So we started the story with two Jewish people, Naomi and her husband. His name was Elimelech, and and they're from Judah, I'm going to put Judah on this side because I've been doing Judah on this side most of the time. So they're from Judah, and then they, because there's a famine in Judah, they move to Moab, which is on this side, and uh, life looks pretty good there. Everything's going great. The first tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. Naomi loses her husband, which is a tragic thing. Seems like life picks up a bit. Uh, they're two boys, Mahalan and Killian. They find Moabite woman. Ruth and Orpah, and life looks like it's picking up a bit, and then tragedy strikes again. Bang! The two boys die. So now Naomi is left without all the husband, with all the men in her family. There's no men. And so, in our first sermon, what we looked at is we, we kind of looked at the fact that not only was this a tragic and terrible thing, I mean, no one should ever go through that experience of losing pretty much their whole family. But there's other complications as well. Uh, she's on the brink of poverty. So in that society, men owned all the possessions. They owned the land. So as long as there was men in the family, you could keep the land and the property. Uh, but now she doesn't have the men. So she's on the brink of poverty. And, and not only that, she can't earn anything because she's too old. The second thing is Jewish men felt the responsibility of providing, a, sorry, Jewish women felt the responsibility of providing a male heir for their husbands, a son to carry on his name. And Naomi can't do that now because there's no more men in the family. So the answer to her problems is what's called a kinsman redeemer. So in Jewish law, if a woman lost her husband and had no male heir, a relative of her deceased husband could marry her. In other words, in order for Naomi, Ruth, or Orpah to get their property back and continue the name of Elimelech, these women need to find a cousin or brother or second cousin of Elimelech to marry. All right? So it doesn't have to be Naomi that does the marrying. It can be uh, Ruth or Orpah. So while they're in this tragic state where they don't have the men, and we've just explained how difficult it is, they decide 
uh, Naomi decides it's good to move back from Moab to Judah because she finds out that the Lord has been blessing the fields in Judah, so there's food. So she thinks that if the Lord is blessing the field, maybe there's a bit of hope. So they they head down that way. Orpah decides rather to stay in Moab. Uh, and remember, we saw Ruth made that incredible oath in chapter 1 to never leave Naomi and help her for the rest of her life. And that's exactly what they do in chapter 2. Uh, Ruth starts to help Naomi. They meet a kinsman redeemer who can marry Ruth. Uh, hope begins to kind of fill the air at this point in the book. If Boaz marries Ruth, then they don't lose all their possessions and there's a great chance of having a male heir. And then in chapter 3, we saw the burden was lifted even more because Boaz then commits to making sure Ruth has a redeemer. He knows he is a redeemer, but he decides to abide by Jewish law, which stated that a relative that is closer to Elimelech needs to be given first chance at marrying Ruth or Naomi. That was just how things worked. So even though the story makes us feel like we really want Boaz to be the redeemer, Boaz does the right thing. And he goes, he says, I've got a friend, I mean, I've got a relative who is closer, I know him, let me speak to him first. And so that's, now Now we're at chapter 4, this is where we're at in the story, and we're going to see who's going to redeem Ruth. The good news is we know that Ruth and Naomi are going to be redeemed, but who's going to do it? That's the question. And what we're going to see in the text is, remember the main point is restoration, so we're going to see that restoration comes through this Redeemer, and, and what we're going to see, two things about restoration is God's means of restoration, which is through a sacrificial Savior, and the extent of that restoration. He doesn't just restore Naomi and Ruth, but he restores all of God's people. So let's dig into the text. All right. The first point is the sacrificial Savior. So this is how he redeems. This, sorry, this is how he restores. So let's look at verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Okay, so the gate that's being spoken about here is the gate that joined the city to the farmlands. You can imagine in an agricultural society, this would have then been a very popular place because people were constantly moving between the farm and the city. So if Boaz was going to find the kinsman redeemer that he's looking for, the best place to look for him would be at the gate. But the other reason the gate is such a great place is because often legal proceedings would happen at the gate. It was just practical. Often legal proceedings needed people to be witnesses of the proceedings. And since the gate was so popular, all you need to do is basically just grab a few people. <laughs> They're all walking through. So you say, listen, I need you to be witnesses. Come here. And people would do so. Also, often they needed elders from the ruling families to make decisions within legal matters. Now, if you remember, Israel back then was divided into 12 tribes. And within those tribes, they were leading families. And within those leading families, they were elders. 
So often on legal disputes, they need to rustle up a minimum of 10 elders. So obviously the best place to find these guys is just, just go to the city gate. That's where they're going to be walking. So Boaz is quite smart here. He uses a good place to do the legal proceedings and to find this redeemer. And in verse 1, he grabs his redeemer and tells him to sit. And then in verse 2, he gets some elders. So let's carry on the story, if you can picture it in your head. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you won't, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it. For myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I can't redeem it. So when you read this, this section that I've just read, it appears like Boaz is being a little bit manipulative. See, instead of, instead of telling the second redeemer everything involved in the deal up front, he kind of chooses to give half the information up front, and then the other half later. He says, Naomi's got some land, you are the closer redeemer, you buy it. Then when the redeemer says, oh yes I will, then Boaz gives the fine print of the deal. He says, oh by the way, you also get Naomi and Ruth, and you have to make sure that the name of their dead husband continues. That's a big deal. Of course the redeemer then responds with no. And so it can, it can kind of look like Boaz is being manipulative because we know that Boaz wants to, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. So it can look like he's manipulating the scene to get what he wants. But if we take the rest of the book into account, Boaz is not shown to be manipulative. In fact, he's very godly. He's the opposite. So it's likely that Boaz is doing something else. And here's what I think he's doing. I think he's running a character test on the second redeemer to see if he is worthy of redeeming Ruth and Naomi. What you see in this man's heart is that he's willing to receive. So this is the outcome of the test. You see in this man's heart that he's willing to receive, but he's not willing to sacrificially give. This is his character. Back then, you could you could just redeem the land if you wanted to. That was something you didn't have to marry. Uh, you didn't. They didn't have to take Ruth and, and Naomi. They could just redeem the land. And according to Robert Hubbard, who was one of the commentators that I read before preparing this, I mean, when I was preparing this, uh, he said that the land would not have cost the redeemer much. And I'm assuming it's because Naomi needs to sell this land. So she can't really charge a very high price for it. And thus, there's going to be a lot of benefit if this man can get this land for pretty cheap. The first benefit is that he looks good in society. 
because he's carrying out his family duties. What a man. What a great man he is. Secondly, his land, land meant he could produce more and make more money. And if he's not paying much for the, the land, then what a bargain, right? Thirdly, his chances of his lo- losing the land are slim. Because Elimelech's not around anymore. Naomi's too old to have kids. And Ruth, I mean, she's a Moabite. No one's going to marry a Moabite because if you remember, there's a racism between the Moabites and the Jews. So, so no one's going to take this land from him. There's no inheritance that can take this land. And that was the only other person that could take the land from this Redeemer. So there's no real chance of, of anybody to us taking it. So this is a really good deal. He's getting land for a very good price and he's not going to lose it. He's now, and, and to think about it, he's also got way more land to give to his kids, his family, right? And back then, land was a very big thing. So this is a huge deal. So you can imagine when Boaz says, here's land for pretty much next to nothing, he's going, of course I'll redeem it. He gains. In that deal, all he's got is gain. But when Naomi and Ruth are mentioned as part of the deal, then it's no longer all about gain. Now this guy has to sacrifice. So he says in verse in verse 6, he's not willing to impact the inheritance he leaves on his family. And he's right. Now he's literally gained a whole other family. Ruth and Naomi may give birth to lots of kids, which impacts his inheritance that stands to be given to his kids. It's not just Naomi's land that his kids could lose out on, but even some of the land he owns now could be given to Ruth and Naomi's kids. Plus, he's going to have to spend lots of money on this added family, which diminishes the wealth that he can pass on to his own kids. So this Redeemer is willing to get, but not sacrificially give. This is why Boaz words the deal in the way that he does. He's not being malicious, but he's testing the character of this man. Because Boaz knows that to redeem this family, he's going to need to be a sacrificial person. I mean, as we said earlier, he's literally taking on another family. That's a whole lot of mouths to feed, bodies to clothe, children to raise, women to love. These people need to be treated as his, this redeemer needs to treat this family like his own family. And if you're here today and you have a family, you know, you know family involves sacrifice. So Boaz tests the man's character, and the man who was very keen to redeem the land fails the test in the end because he's unable to sacrifice. This this man's character is the very opposite of Boaz. Verse 9 and 10 tells us this. Because when Boaz says without flinching that he will redeem Naomi and Ruth, it means that he's willing to take on the huge sacrifice. In other words, he knows the cost of redemption, and he's willing to pay it. Now, as we mentioned in the first sermon in in Ruth, in this book of Ruth, that Boaz and Ruth are actually both pictures of Jesus. And when it comes to sacrifice, you don't get a better 
sacrificer than Jesus. If you want, you can open up your Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. And it says this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, this is Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this, this text is just packed with sacrificial language talking about Jesus. There are so many striking images. God becoming a man, that's striking. When you think of the fact that in the Psalms, it says that God literally holds all of creation, all of the heavens in the palm of his hands. That's literally all the planets. That's literally the entire of space. And you add heaven on top of that and it fits into the palm of his hand. Man, this God is huge. He's a great and glorious God. And yet, he becomes a human. That's a staggering thought, right? Then after that, he, he's not, he not only becomes a man, but he serves humanity. So the God that is holy and majestic, who commands angels, who speaks, and the world comes into being, this God who is so great and awesome and majestic and powerful, becomes not just a human, but comes to serve a human I mean, that's staggering, right? The extent that God goes to serve. But you want to know the thing that I found the most staggering in this passage. And I've read this passage millions of times, but not millions of times, lots of times, maybe hundreds of times. But I read this for the, about a few months back, I read this passage again and something just blew my mind. That's what I love about the Bible. You can read it over and over again and you keep getting new Nuggets of gold. <laughs> it says, the first three words of verse 7 blew my mind. God emptied himself. See, the reason why this is so incredible, it's because this emptying is not like the emptying of a bucket. Where you empty out the bucket and you still have the bucket. This is like an ice cube emptying itself of water. If an ice cube empties itself of water, what do you have left? Nothing. That's right. Nothing. If you've got an NIV translation, it says God made himself nothing. Now, when I first understood what emptying himself meant, I cried. Because I get overwhelmed at the very thought that, yes, God made himself a man. That's overwhelming just in itself. I, I, I'm even more overwhelmed by the fact that he serves a man. But when I think, I can't even think or fathom the thought of the God of the universe becoming nothing to save humanity. You can't, if you're trying to fathom that, you can't. Okay? It's just not fathomable. And then you think that God came to save us. He came to save you. And he made himself nothing to save you. There is no place in history 
where somebody has served to a greater extent and sacrificed themselves to a greater extent than the God of the Bible. So Jesus passes Boaz's character test with flying colors. Because Boaz's test was to see whether the Redeemer would put the needs of others above himself. And Jesus not only gives himself, but he makes himself nothing. I think he passes the test, doesn't he? Now, if, you, if you, you're not a Christian here today, you've got to ask yourself something. If Jesus has proven himself worthy of being a redeemer, then maybe he's proved himself worthy of redeeming you. See, in chapter 2 when we were in Ruth, we saw that a redeemer protects. We saw that he looks after by holding us close under his wing. And if you're honest with yourself, you take on the role of protecting and looking after yourself and you get it right sometimes. There's a lot of times where you failed as well, isn't it? We need a God who, like Ruth in chapter 1, promises to never leave us and who commits to looking after us until we die. We need a God who, like Boaz in chapter 2, provides for us and sustains for us. And because he's willing to sacrifice so much for us, you can bet That he's willing to sacrifice time to look after you, mold you, and grow you into the person he needs you to be. And he's willing to sacrifice time and energy to one day bring you out of the sinful world that you're in into the paradise that comes after this world. The world of no pain and no suffering. And if you're not a Christian... Ask yourself this, is there anybody who loves you that much that they would become empty, nothing for you? Let me give you the answer to that question. It's no. There isn't. And so if you want to experience that love, experience that Redeemer, the person looking after you from now on and forever, And here's, tonight's the night. And if you are a Christian, in Philippians 2, we're called to be sacrificial like Jesus. Now, now this is something, if you're a preacher, one of the things you need to try to do every now and then is apply the message to yourself first before you apply it to others. I'm struggling with this. Because I had this thought, I looked at this picture of Boaz, and here's what Boaz is doing. He's literally taking on another family. Now, that's not prescriptive. It's not a command. You can't read this and go, okay, therefore, you must take on other families. But let me ask you this. Would you be willing? You know, in Philippians 2 here, this is actually Paul speaking to a church, and he's saying, are you going to live sacrificial lives like Jesus? And in Boaz, we've got this great picture of Jesus. So there's a a wonderful way where we can learn about being sacrificial. But are we willing to go to the extent that Boaz goes? Imagine there's a family who rocks up at your house, desperate need of help, doesn't have a place to stay. Do you give them a home? 
I wrestle with this because, man, I like my space. <laughs> I like my couch. I love my Netflix. Don't want somebody bothering me then. I thought about it, and I was like, would I be willing to adopt a child who's in need? If I'm honest with you, I'm the first redeemer. I want the possessions all for myself. I'm willing to receive, but I struggle to give. Where's your heart at? The second and final point. The world restorer. Once Boaz declares that he will redeem Ruth, we see in verse 11, that the witnesses then validate this legal agreement by acknowledging that they are witnesses. And you can see that in the first sentence of verse 11. Now remember, Boaz would need, uh, would need witnesses to acknowledge that he had done everything to, to book. And when they acknowledge that they are witnesses, uh, they bring the whole legal proceedings to a close. And, and what follows after that is good wishes. And I don't know if you've had this like many weddings, even today, the common theme in their good wishes is that you have kids. Okay, this is the part of weddings that I actually don't like. And here's why. You've just done this momentous step of getting married and people are already pushing you on to the next step. Have you had that? This is just my personal opinion anyway. It was a side road. I'm just getting it out there. I, I, I often look at, I'm at the weddings and then I see a great uncle and aunt and they go, may you have many kids. And I'm just watching, just watching the groom going, I've just done this step. I just, I just got here. Like, are you really talking about step two? Like, let's slow down. Okay. I'm pretty sure the bride's thinking it as well. This is a big thing. But what is interesting is, is the reason for hoping that Ruth and Boaz have kids. It's not just because kids are a blessing, which they are, but it's because in this specific situation, having kids will restore the family line. And you can see that in the text they, they mention, uh, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but uh, they mention Rachel and Leah and further down in the passage they mention Tamar. That's just because these women, uh, through giving birth to sons, they took Jewish men whose names were on the verge of extinction, and they managed to restore their families by giving them sons. All right? And, and so God does bless the family of Ruth and Naomi, uh, he, restoring the line. We see that in verse 13. But what we also see is that through restoring the family line, God blesses Israel as well. So if you look in verse 18, verses 18 to 22, they talk about, they give a huge, well not a huge, it's a very small genealogy that ends in David. If you know your Bibles well enough, you know that David was a great Jewish king that actually brought about a peace in Jerusalem that lasted 40 years. So he didn't have the peace during his time, but his son Solomon got to reap the rewards of David's kingship. And this is amazing because not only has the Lord restored a family line that saves Ruth and Naomi, but through restoring Ruth and Naomi's family line, he actually restores the whole Jewish nation. So this ending kind of gives you a new perspective on the book because you suddenly realize 
that not only was the line of Elimelech on the line, excuse the pun, but so was the line of David. If Boaz had not married Ruth, then David would never have come about. So through redeeming Ruth and Naomi, God is also redeeming Israel. But if you actually look, and you can go there in your Bibles if you want, in Matthew chapter 1, you see a bigger redemption actually takes place. Because God not only restores the line that brought about David in the book of Ruth, but that same line went on to eventually bring about Jesus. In other words, if the Lord had not restored the line of Ruth, God's ultimate redeemer, Jesus, may not have actually been born. So to close off, chapter 4 is all about restoration. Throughout the book of Ruth, we see God restoring his people through his sacrificial redeemers. God takes them from being empty, as we saw in chapter 1, and makes them whole in the end. And in Jesus, we see the Redeemer who ultimately restores. Now, if you, if you look at Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10, Paul has another way of describing the emptiness. So just to repeat that, in Ruth chapter 1, we saw they were empty. And at the end of Ruth, we see that they are full. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, there's a different kind of way of speaking about it. Instead of calling us empty, he calls us dead. In other words, he says, you are so empty that it's like there's nothing of you, like you don't exist, like you're dead. And he explains that it's because of sin, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are made alive in Christ. Or to put it another way, we are restored or made whole in Christ. And the reason we are empty or dead is because we're separated from Christ and we need to be made whole. Now, now these are kind of big theological terms that I'm using, so let me make it real to you. Many of us actually know what it's like to be empty. But we often don't know the true reason as to why we're empty. So there was this girl who used to be a part of our church here. She moved to another province. And one day, I remember her WhatsApping me, asking me for something. And so I asked her how she was doing. And she did that thing where she could have just voice noted, but she wrote a two-page essay. You know that? So she wrote this two-page essay in response, telling me everything that's going wrong. And she finished off by saying this. She says, I've been praying that God would come down to earth and solve my problems. Not send his son like he did last time, but come himself. Okay. Now, you know that's already a skewed view of the Trinity. Okay. So, But I think she's put to words something that we sometimes feel. We feel like God is aloof, just sitting up in heaven while we're suffering down here. He actually needs to get off that chair and come and sort things out, right? But what this girl was doing, and it's something that we fall into the trap of, is we undermine what Jesus did at the cross. Because she's saying that when Jesus came down, it wasn't good enough. God needs to come now, and he needs to sort out my issues now. 
So this woman was feeling empty, kind of like Ruth and Naomi, because God is not solving the problems now. But what she fails to see is the true reason as to why she's empty. She's empty because of sin. Because you see, sin is actually at the heart of every issue you face. Sin is the reason we have problematic relationships. Sin is the reason we get sick and die. Sin is the reason we have erratic weather. Sin is what makes the news news. Because it's behind stealing, it's behind corruption, murder, genocide, war. It's the reason the world is warped. It's the reason you feel empty like Naomi, like this girl. It's the reason why, as Kate mentioned earlier, women are struggling in this country. Now, this is not to belittle what women go through in any stretch or form. It's not to simplify it either. But if you do not see sin as the core of all of these things, you've got a problem. And, and, and it's not bad to pray for all of these things. This girl that I was chatting to was in the right, but she needs to see sin, and so do we. Because here's what we learn from Genesis 1 through 3. You know this well. God made a perfect world, a world that he classified as good. A world that was whole. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they made a choice not to have God in their lives. And so God says, okay, that's what you want. A world without my leadership. And the thing is, because he's a good God and he allowed them to have choice, he let them have their choice. And so what does God do? He takes a step back. And thankfully, God doesn't take a full step back out of this world because we still see a lot of good things. But when a good God takes a step back, what fills that is the opposite of good. It's evil. Now, thankfully, as I said earlier, God doesn't completely leave us. But this is the world we shouldn't be in. And we're experiencing it right now. We experience all that evil offers. We experience it from inside of ourselves as well. I just have to ask you, how are you? And you will give me answers like, yeah, I'm okay, but my colleague, or but my family, or but my work environment, or but my health, or I'm struggling with purpose, or I'm wrestling with how I view myself, or I'm wrestling with the person that I am. All of those things are just results from a world where people have chosen to not have God and God has said, okay. Why are you empty? It's because God is missing. Do you hear that? <laughs> You're empty because God is missing. He's missing from your job. He's missing from your family, missing from your friendships, missing from you. Now, thankfully, God has not taken a complete step back. There's still good in your life, but that good is not complete. And so for God to take a step back and restore the good things that is missing, he needed to do something. And the great news is he has. That's what the cross is all about. Because at the cross, Jesus deals with that one thing that prevents God from taking a full step back, and that is sin. Sin. 
Sin is the absence of God. It's what fills the space when good is gone. But Jesus at the cross defeats sin. Now, now going back to the story of that girl, what that girl was asking for is for God to fix the results of sin and not sin itself. She was saying, fix the problems in my life. Your son didn't fix them before. I need you now. Come. But what she's missing is the momentous achievement of the cross, the defeat of sin, and the promise of God stepping back. She didn't see what was at the core of the issues. It's kind of it's kind of like going to the doctor and saying to the doctor, uh, I, I've got a pain all the way down my left arm. And the doctor responds with saying, well, the reason you've got that pain is because your heart is failing. And you say, no, no, don't worry about my heart. Just fix the arm. Now, of course, you would never do that. You'd fix the source of the problem, your heart. Otherwise, you'd either die or you'd come back in a few days' time with another issue. You'd say, Doc, my arm's like a bit better now, but my chest, man, it's killing me. And, of course, the doctor's going to be like, I told you this last time, it's your heart. And you're like, nah, just give me painkillers for my chest. See, this is what this girl was doing, asking God to fix the symptoms and he's like, you need to deal with the heart of your, all your problems, and that's actually sin. Now, it's great to pray that God solves your problems. It's great that this girl was asking God for help, but if you don't have Christ, God may solve the problems now like the sore arm, but sooner or later your chest is going to get sore, or something else. You'll be back at the doctor saying, doctor, fix me, fix me. You'll be coming back to God all the time saying, fix me, fix me. And he's only fixing the symptoms of your heart. So you need to come to Jesus. And like Ruth, you need to come under the wing of Jesus and let him restore you. Let him take the sin of your life and kill it at the cross. And then here's what happens is God slowly begins to take a step back. He doesn't do it immediately the moment you become a Christian. That only happens when you're with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But you do experience him slowly returning back as he slowly restores you back to himself. So if you're not a Christian here today, here's the thing. The issues in your life are actually warning signs telling you that life is not what it should be. Like the rusty car in the beginning, you know you need restoration. And the way to do that is by coming to Jesus. But if you are a Christian, don't be like this girl. Focusing on the symptoms of the sinful will that you forget about the cross. If you do then that, that, then at some point, what's actually going to happen is you're going to jump off this road that we're all traveling on as we're heading towards the new heavens and the new earth. Because you're going to give up on Jesus at some point. Instead, as Philippians 3 says, keep your eyes on the goal that is set before you, which is Jesus. He is our goal. And if you do that, you'll be walking with us on that road to a life that is filled with good, not emptiness. You and I both know you need this. You need it more than a God that solves the individual problems of your life. You need Jesus to change your heart. And I think I'm going to end on that note. Let me pray for us.
Father God, we've come to the end of the book of Ruth. And Father, we've seen your redemptive, this is Redemption Road. And Father, we've seen how you took a family that was broken and battered and you restored them to yourself and you restored the whole of Israel. And Lord, we know that you're restoring us now. And Father, I just, I pray for everybody else here that they're not like that girl, that they truly, they truly come to you and let you do your work of restoring. I pray for the people who don't believe you. I pray that tonight's the night they speak to you and they ask you to be the one who saves them, the one who holds them under your wing. I pray for the Christian here that they may continue to trust in you and grow in you and see you as the true and ultimate redeemer and restorer that you are. And I pray this in your majestic and amazing name. Amen.